0: Okay. Hello, everybody. My name is Ursula Hackett of the New Books Network, New Books in Public Policy podcast. Today, I'm delighted to welcome two of the authors of the book Secular Surge, A New Fault Line in American Politics, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. David E. Campbell is Packy J.G., Professor of American Democracy at the University of Notre Dame. And Jeffrey C. Lehman is Professor of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame. Now, this book is an absolute treasure trove of data about political choices and the attitudes of people with different levels of non-religiosity and secularism in the United States. Um, So I'd like to Kick off by asking you a bit about how this project came about. So, Dave, I wondered if you could tell us the origin story for Secular Search. How did you and your co author, John C. Green, come to co author this book? Well,
2: that is a very good question. And there is actually a story uh, behind the origin of this book and the project out of which it comes. Um, John, Jeff, and I have long worked on questions related to religion and its role in American politics. In fact, John is one of the pioneers um, in that area, and Jeff and I came a little later to the party, but we've been working on it for a, a number of years and have written various things, and we've written together, the three of us, sometimes it's just the two of us, but you know, as a threesome, we've done a lot of work on religion, and about a decade ago, um, we had a lot of conversations with one another about the rise of what are popularly known as the nuns, N-O-N-E, that kind of nun, meaning people who, when asked what their religious affiliation is, respond none or nothing in particular or no affiliation. It's long been noted um, that the percentage of nuns in the American population has been increasing, but it became clear to us that that did not fully reflect the role of secularism in American society because to focus only on people who say they don't have a religious affiliation misses a large swath of the population who we hypothesized had a secular worldview or a secular approach in the way that they think about life and the way they, you know, approach all sorts of things, including politics. But we also realized that we didn't have the measurement tools to understand the difference between simply people who are not religious versus those who are uh, secular. And just as a generation ago, John and other religion scholars uh, worked out a way to properly measure the various religious traditions in the United States, we thought the secular population deserves the same attention. So it all began with that idea. And initially, we actually had a grant from the National Science Foundation here in the U.S. uh, to develop those measures and to try to make sense out of the secular population by doing a big study. We actually did it in four waves. So we interviewed the same people four times to try to uh, develop our measures and then understand how secularism might affect their political views and how their political views might affect their secularism.
0: And there are many different terms that people use to describe uh, non-religiosity or secularism. Um, So, Jeff, what exactly is it that you mean when you talk about a secular surge? Um, Can you just walk us through that core concept?
3: Um, Yes. And that was part of our experience in um, working with our panel data that we gathered through the, the NSF grant that Dave spoke about. Um, you know, initially we didn't really fully understand the distinction between the people that we now call non-religionists, um, and the people that we call secularists. Um, and in some of our own past work, um, we have made mistakes that, that we identify in this book of just sort of equating secularism with what you might call nunness or, or non-religiosity. Um, so for us, secularism is distinct, certainly related, but distinct um, from non-religion or being a nun. Non-religion is the absence of something. It means not um, affiliating with a religious faith, not attending worship services, not believing in God, not uh, reading scripture. Secularism, on the other hand, is um, is an affirmative um, belief in an attachment to, uh, secular identities, secular beliefs, secular worldviews. Um, so people who embrace rationalism, humanism, um, a, a rational reason, scientific view of the world and of human history, um, those are secularists. So, um, it is quite possible for, um, There are many non-religionists who are not secularists at all. Um, They do not affiliate with a religion. They don't attend uh, religious services, but they have no positive identity with or belief in secularism. At the same time, it's also possible to be a religious person to some degree, to affiliate um, with um, a religious faith, but also be a secularist, also embrace a secular, rationalist, humanist view of the world. Probably not possible to be a hardcore evangelical Christian uh, and also a secularist, but certainly possible to be uh, in the U.S. We would call it an Episcopalian. In the U.K., it would be Church of England. Um, Certainly possible in a faith like that or uh, a Lutheran church or a Methodist church in the United States to be a member And to have some belief in God, but also embrace uh, rationalist and humanist perspectives that are all part of secularism.
0: And so this analytical distinction that you're making here between the sort of non-religionists and secularists is actually absolutely core to your book, isn't it? You've got this on the one hand, you've got the people that we might think of. Um, most easily, you know, you've got the sort of the the out-and-out secularists who are both high in their personal non-religiosity and in terms of their personal secularism, and you've got the religionists on the other side who are um, low on both of those scores, but then you've also got these people who are kind of off the diagonal, who are either, as you say, Jeff, you've got the religious secularists, but you've also got these non-religionists, and I was just really sort of aware as we were talking just then, both of you talking, uh, about um, the, the, the need to use these, to have these more fine-grained labels, partly because none really is unfortunately ambiguous when it's spoken aloud. I mean, you have to say "none," don't you, at all times? Um, otherwise, it's really quite kind of ambiguous what we're talking about. So, this analytical distinction um, is is core to the book, and you uh, uncover various characteristics of the people who uh, are, are part, who actually um, are part of these different categories. These four different categories that you identify. Um, And and there's not insignificant numbers who are actually part of each of these categories as well, right? You've still got a substantial number of of non-religionists, you've got a substantial number of religious secularists. So um, let's think first about the the sort of out and out secularists in your schema. Um, What is it you can tell me about secularists, Dave, um, from the point of view of their education levels, and and from the point of view of their race, their class, their age, who are these people?
2: Well, for the most part, not surprisingly, people who are in our system of classification, secularists, are highly educated. Now, that's a tendency that doesn't mean that they're all highly educated, but nonetheless, you do find on average, a high level of education. They're more likely to be white than a person of color, and they're more likely to be a man than a woman. So you're looking at a group of highly educated white men. Uh, Mm -hmm. Again, not exclusively, and I do wanna emphasize that, these are only tendencies. Um, But when we look not just at their demographics, but also at their political views, we find that they're highly distinctive, uh, even from other highly educated white men. Uh, These are people who are very far to the left politically. Uh, We would probably call them progressives, Think of them as, in the U.S. context, as being Bernie Sanders supporters. Uh, again, not exclusively, but you can sort of think of that as a good way to, to understand their, their political approach. And they're also highly active in both uh, civic and political life, and especially in political life. This is a highly engaged group of people. They are progressive activists. Uh, and that's why, and I'm sure we'll talk some more about this, they represent uh, both a challenge and an opportunity for the Democratic Party in the United
0: States. I find that fascinating. I actually wanted to pick up on that, Dave, because um I mean amongst religionists it's, it's it's quite clear that they're both highly civically engaged and also highly politically engaged and we we think about the the, the religious right um, traditionally when you think about the sort of quintessential uh religionist who is very very highly politically engaged but in terms of the secularists I mean one of the things that you found in the book which I thought was quite interesting was you've got um a group that is very highly politically engaged but only moderate levels of civic engagement I mean I mean not low levels not low levels as you quite rightly say but but only moderate in comparison to the political engagement um, side of things and I was just kind of interested in why that might be because we think of these political and civic engagement as being things that spill over really quite readily um, one to the other
2: well you know I've spent uh, a large part of my career trying to make that distinction between civic and political activity. It's something I've thought a lot about. And to the extent we can draw that line, you are 100% correct. The secularists are really high on politics and only in the middle on civic stuff. And why is that? Well, the explanation is actually not that hard to see. And that is that um, in the American context, a lot of civic activity comes through religious groups. Um, In fact you could argue that religious congregations are the largest engine of civic activity in the United States and secularists obviously don't have that kind of social network. You know, there is no secular equivalent to a religious congregation. Um, But it it, it does present an interesting question of what this means for the future of American civic life. If we have a group that appears to be growing, that is much more engaged in politics than in civic stuff, that is the non-political community activity. It does sort of suggest that we're headed toward a more politicized civic arena.
0: Okay, so that's, oh, Jeff wants to come in on this, please.
2: Uh, I was just going to say one thing that Dave
3: didn't mention uh, demographically about the secularists is that, of course, they tend to be younger. Um, Now, they're not exclusively young. That's important to say, because that's one thing that distinguishes uh, the secular surge in the United States from sort of the long march to secularism in Europe is that it's not uh, it, not really largely due to generational replacement. So it's not as if it's exclusively the young, but the young are more likely to be secularists. Um, and I think the young tending to be a little less um, uh, tied, to the community are probably less likely to engage in the sort of civic activities that older people who are um, more um, tightly embedded in their communities are and to some extent i think for young secularists politics in some ways is sort of an alternative to religion or it is their civic engagement being involved in primarily left-wing political activities is what brings them a sense of engagement and to some extent a sense of community. Um, so for them, politics really is the new religion.
0: I hope we're going to talk uh, at great length perhaps later in the podcast about the future of American politics and the future of secularism and how these p- these dynamics are going to play out in the, uh, in the next few years. But I wonder if there, there's uh, one thing I was thinking about as I was uh, listening to what you just have to say is, is whether there's a... De- difference between like cradle secularists um versus those who lose their faith over the course of their lifetime or lose the faith of their childhood i mean do you have anything to did did any of your um uh uh do you have did, did your data sh- show anything about what whether there might be a distinction there
3: I, i'm not sure that we have any direct tests of that we do of course Um, devote some attention in the book to um, what you might call the politicized religion hypothesis, which first came about um, uh, from uh, some work by sociologists of religion in the early part of the 21st century. Um, And, um, you know, we do find some evidence that people are being driven from religion and to some extent towards secularism by politics. So I would imagine that it follows from that, that the people who have been driven from faith and perhaps towards secularism later in life and with political um, factors moving them in that direction would be perhaps more politicized than a, a cradle secularist. Um, and and we, don't, we don't have the data to really assess very well how many cradle secularists there are. My instinct, though, is it's relatively small because non-religion and secularism in the United States was such a tiny proportion of, of the American landscape as late as 1990. So a lot of this action is within the last three decades.
2: Mm-hmm. It I mean, also raises yes. oh, I, I was say it also raises the interesting question of what, what it would mean to be raised in a secular household. And I know there are people who have you know studied that. As Jeff has said, that's a relatively small share of the U.S. population. But um, small share or not, it's still an interesting question because in a religious household, it's easy to envision what it means for parents to transfer or try to socialize their children into their religion. They're bringing them to church. They're teaching them the songs. They're you know, learning the scriptures, all of that kind of stuff with secularism. It's not clear what the alternative would be. Um, you know, you're, you're probably not going to get together on a Sunday morning and read Darwin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so whatever kind of transmission is happening intergenerationally, it ha- presumably it's much more subtle than you would find for religious socialization
0: and I'm interested also in these groups that are kind of off your diagonal that are that are that are, that are not 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 secularists and the religionists but those religious secularists and the non religious religionists and I wonder if we could just dig down into those a little bit so you find with respect to your religious secularist category. That is, people who are high in terms of their personal secularism, but also high in terms of their personal religiosity. I mean, that's a very, very very interesting concept. And you find some pretty stark results with respect to their high levels of political and civic engagement. And I wondered what was going on there. I mean, what is it about that particular category that of religious secularists and being particularly civic and politically minded and what you think might be driving that. Uh, Jeff, do you want to take that up?
3: Uh, well, I think Dave is actually the better person to take this up as a civic engagement guy.
2: Well, I'll just simply say that, um, first of all, this category for some people is sort of mind bending the idea that we would put the word religious next to secularist, religious secularists until we give you examples. So let me just, for the listening audience, give you a, sort of a way to wrap your brain around who these people are. A lot of Jews are religious secularists. Um, a lot of uh, mainline Protestants, um, as Jeff said, here in the U.S. Episcopalians uh, would be religious secularists. Uh, and even a fair number of Catholics are as well. So these are people who are part of a religious community often, But they see the world through a secular lens, and they have found a way in their own minds to balance both religion and secularism, which also underscores one of our main points in the book, which is that those two things are not necessarily opposites of one another, that you really can have a secular worldview and still be at least somewhat religious. Now, in terms of their civic activity, um, they are very high. And this sort of makes sense because on the one hand, they have the religious community, that sort of connection, the social capital you build within a religious community that feeds civic involvement. But then they also have the secular worldview, which might contribute to their civic life, but also drives them toward political activity. So it's kind of a double dose of the various things in the mix that might lead people to be civically engaged. Religious secularists, they they have it all. And so they end up
0: being our most civically engaged and our
2: most politically engaged group.
0: That's interesting. So would you say that the, the, the would the opposite be true of those on the other side of the diagonal? Because there's this, this other group as well, which are which are non Religionists, and one of the things that you describe in the book, which is which is, I think, listeners will be interested to hear about, would be the the affiliation of that group with Donald Trump. And I wondered whether you could tell us a bit about how that relationship arises and and, and what's actually going on there, Jeff.
3: Well, I think the non-religionists are to some extent sort of the classic civic dropouts. Um, you know, so they're they're not part of a religious community, and so they don't have the spurring towards civic and political engagement that a religious community brings at the same time they don't all they also don't have a commitment to any other sort of coherent worldview like secularism um, they tend to be um, more working class less likely to be college educated Um, Like the secularists, they tend to be largely white because white people in the United States are on average less religious than people of color, particularly African-Americans. So these are largely white working class people. And again, they tend to be male um, because um, women tend to be more religious than men in the United States. So our non-religionists Um, are are sort of the, they're they're not the polar opposite of the secularists, um, but what mainly distinguishes them demographically is um, education levels, um, social class, maybe age to some extent. And so these people are largely um, civic dropouts. They are not deeply embedded in um, communities, in civic life, in political life. Um, They have traditionally tended to be independents, political independents, more so than Democrats or Republicans, um, and their lack of affiliation with a religion and with a lot of other social groupings um, may help explain their lack of affiliation with a political party. Um, They have, on average, tended to vote Democratic, but not nearly as strongly as the secularists, but all of the traits Um, that they possess, being non-college educated largely, being not particularly tied to their communities, certainly not to civic or political life, not tied to a religious community, uh, I think made them particularly right for appeals from somebody like Donald Trump. Um, who was speaking to the alienated white working class male to some extent, to speaking to people who didn't feel a sense of belonging to a community, who felt some sense of of loss, of status anxiety, um, that somehow America was leaving them behind. That Trump's message, to a large extent, was tailor made for people like this, and so we find that. Um, non-religionists did um, provide a lot of support for Trump. Now, across the board, non-religionists across the entire U.S. population were more likely to vote for Clinton or for Biden than for Trump. But among those non-religionists who were either uh, identified as Republican or identified as independents but lean in a Republican direction, they were very strongly supportive of Trump, even early in the 2016 Republican primary season, in fact, that was really Trump's base as his campaign got off the ground and he began you finished second in Iowa and began to win primaries, was not yet really the favorite. His base of support was not devout evangelical Christians. It was the non-religionists, some of whom may affiliate um, with an evangelical denomination, um, but rarely, if ever, attend church. Um, and so the non-religionists are really the base that got the Trump movement going, um, and they continued to be strong supporters of Trump, at least those who, who tend to lean in a Republican direction.
0: So I'd like to drill down a bit into this relationship between religious attitudes and attitudes towards secularism and, and, and sort of political uh, attitudes as well. And I think, I mean, people often sort of, you know, Lay people might well think, OK, so there's this ways in which your religious attitudes might affect your political views, um, but not the other way around. Um, but it sounds it, as part one of the things that you're trying to do in this book, I think, is to try and maybe query that, that very uh, monocausal one way story about the causal Relationship between these 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 things between po- your pol- political stance and your religious uh, views, and I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about the strength of that relationship and the direction of the causality, um, and 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 where perhaps this story about Donald Trump and the non-religionists might enter into that calculus, Jeff.
3: Uh, yeah. I- As you said, Ursula, traditionally political scientists, including, uh, people who study religion and politics have always thought of this relationship as being one way that religion drives political choices, political identities in much the same way that gender would or social class would, um, or that race would. Um, but, um, you know, beginning with this idea from um, Michael Hout and Claude Fisher, um, around two thousand one, that a lot of the growth of the nuns in the United States is due to politics, is due to this reaction of the congealing of um, religion and conservative Republican politics to some extent becoming one in the same. That. Um, you know a negative reaction or an allergic reaction, people who are not Republicans uh, and may have been religious but were not devoutly religious, had to that coupling of religion and conservative Republican politics was to move away from religion. Um, later, people, uh, including uh, dave and and Bob Putnam in their book, American Grace, find that the opposite goes also happens that, people who are more republican um, if that's a core part of their identity they tend to flock to religion because religion and the republican party are so um, embedded together and so as religion has become more politicized and as the party's coalitions have become increasingly polarized along religious lines um, what we found is, or what seems to be happening is that people are making their choices about um, religion and religious belonging increasingly based on what they see going on in politics. Um, so what we actually find in the book, we have, we have a number of different ways of looking at this. We have uh, panel data that we gathered. We also do experiments where we provide people with Um, cues about um, religious faith and politics going together with uh, candidate scenarios of candidates who are coupling their politics and their policy positions with religious faith or or not doing that, Um, what we find is very clear evidence that politics is driving non-religion, driving people to become a nun. Um, I think we have consistent and strong evidence of that, um, on the secularism side is politics driving people to this affirmative, positive embrace of secularism there. We have some evidence that the answer is yes. Um, but the evidence is more limited at the same time. We also have some pretty good evidence, um, that there is a causal link from secularism to political attitudes. So whereas the politics non-religious link seems to be largely driven by politics, the link between secularism and politics is more of a two way street that um, people are attracted to secularism, perhaps by democratic or liberal attitudes and identities, but having a secular worldview and a secular identity also clearly exerts its own causal impact, leading people to be more more liberal and more strongly democratic.
1: Dave. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com/system
2: For uh, anyone listening to sort of sum that up, one way to think about secularism is that um, it appears to be playing the same sort of role that we've long thought religious beliefs and and behaviors would, in that secularism often drives people's political views. And that's new. That's not something that I think we've understood before. And it appears like that is going to be a fixture on the American political landscape for years to come. I don't think this is just a blip.
0: So you have some absolutely fascinating experiments in this book, and I would urge anyone out there um, to, to, to read this book for, for just the wealth of data that you've got, not only as, as Jeff mentions, the panel data, but also uh, an observational data, but also you've got all these wonderful experiments. And I, I found it fascinating that you've got these, you've got these clerical campaign experiments where you're saying, okay, so we're going to, we can actually trigger Religious disaffiliation amongst Democrats if they encounter Republican candidates that have got it that, that use heavy doses of religious rhetoric. But then on the other side of things, you're looking also at whether there is a backlash effect with respect to people who describe themselves as secular in various ways, or, or as non-religious, or even as atheist. And there are some really interesting results here. I mean, I, I found it fascinating, for example, that you've got. Democrats reacting negatively to a sort of fictional school board uh, candidate who says that he doesn't believe in God but they don't seem to really mind a self-described atheist. I think you have five different categories of, or different ways of describing your non-belief. You know, I'm non-religious. or you know, I I don't really currently believe in a religion. I'm I'm an atheist. And and it seems that the the one that has the biggest negative effect is actually that I don't believe in God and and not so much the atheist label. And I, I thought that was quite, fascinating because isn't it the atheist label there that's that's the most toxic of all the of all the labels and i was just wondering what you think might be going on i mean is this just noise or is this uh about people maybe not understanding what the atheist label means compared to the blunt force of i don't believe in god i mean what's happening there do you think uh jeff do you want to take that up
3: Well, um, I think to some extent we we would admit that we're as perplexed as you are by that. Um, We don't fully understand it. In fact, we're um, engaged in ongoing research about exactly what's going on there and the circumstances under which people might support atheist candidates or candidates who say they don't believe in God. I think part of it may be that people don't fully understand what atheist means. They they may not understand the distinction between an atheist and an agnostic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to to hit people in the face with, I don't believe in God, which is so counter to everything that's gone on in the previous 200 plus years of American political history and the American tradition of candidates um uh mentioning god and wrapping themselves up in god and faith and god bless america and using religious image imagery and religious language in political rhetoric Um, that i don't believe in god um is is such a contrast such a slap in the face in comparison to that that you can understand the power of that um The atheist meaning, I don't believe in God, why does that not have the same effect? Um, I suspect it may be some degree of confusion about what the label means. It may be that we're in a political era where we're sort of conditioned or it's become normative to let people have their identity. Somebody's stating their identity, and maybe that just washes over the eyes and ears of our respondents. Whereas, um, an affirmative statement of non-belief, um, is, is more jarring. Um, but, um, so, so we don't quite understand that we do have a better understanding of why people, even Democrats are unlikely to vote for or say they'll support somebody who says, I don't believe in God. And, um, so far the strongest evidence we have is that, um, Americans tend to see people um, who lack faith in God as being um, untrustworthy and unpatriotic. Um, And um, even for Democrats, those two traits, um, everybody, trustworthiness is important. But even for Democrats, patriotism is also an important trait for a political candidate. Um, So that seems to get at the answer for the people who affirmatively state their non-belief in God. Um, The distinction between atheists and people who don't believe in God, that's a little less clear.
0: So I'd like us to think a bit about the effects of this secular surge and um, the sort of prospects um, for the organization of this group of people that have these very, very different labels to describe themselves. And uh, in many ways, as Jeff, as you're saying, that these, there, there's, there's some perhaps some confusion about some of these labels as well. So um, y- one of the things that you suggest in the book, which I thought was quite intriguing, was this idea that, OK, so secularists don't have this very strong sense of shared identity. There's a whole load of different labels that people use, different names that people um, uh, bandy around and uh, different ideas about what this might What what this might mean, Um, and no necessarily not not a very very strong sense of a shared identity as qua secularists. But one of the things you suggest in the book is that that is actually quite similar to the to the story with respect to evangelical Christians forty years ago, and that maybe there are some prospects for organizing secularists in a way that the evangelical Christians were obviously famously uh, organized by the religious right, and so I. I wonder whether you could comment on this, the prospects for that organisation, whether it's the case that, uh, on the one hand, maybe, you know, secondary, that those sort of organisational attempts are doomed to fail because you've got just... Um, so they just can't agree on who they are right are they free thinkers? are they humanists are they non-theists are they secularists? Um, is this like the splinter groups that Monty Python was lampooning in the life of Brian? I mean, is it the curse of the left um, or are you more sort of sanguine or, or, or optimistic perhaps uh, about the prospects for actually organizing that uh, the, the sort of secular left So Dave, I wondered if you could take that that question up
2: Well, I wish I could be confident enough to say, Ursula, 20 years from now, we'll be talking about the secular left in the same way that we talk about the religious right. But it turns out the prediction is hard, especially about the future. So in the book, we actually hedge our bet on this. Um, We do see some evidence, prospects, perhaps that there could be the emergence of a secular left movement Um, that would be in some respects a parallel to the religious right. Now, we want to be careful because um, it's unlikely that any such movement would ever perfectly parallel the religious right, mainly because secularists, as we've already discussed, don't have the sort of organizational infrastructure that you would find in the religious community. There is no equivalent of a you know, religious congregation for a secular uh, population. So there's always a challenge to mobilize them. But as you noted, there's the second challenge, which is not just a matter of them not necessarily coming together on a regular basis, but not having a shared identity. On, on the identity piece there, I do think it's possible, it's not certain, but it's possible that a shared identity could form because we've seen that happen actually in the relatively recent past with other groups, mostly on the political left. And perhaps the best example of that is the, uh, the LGBT or LGBTQ or LGBTQIA um, community, Um, The very acronym reminds us that this is a group made up of people who have differing identities, but they've come to adopt a superordinate identity, sort of an identity that transcends their individual uh, sexual identity so that they think of themselves as all being one group. The same is true for um, Latinos in the United States or Asian Americans. These are groups that also have various subgroups, you know, Within the Latino community, you have many different nationality groups, yet that idea that somehow being Latino transcends all of that has developed, it has formed. And that's happened in a relatively short period of time. So it's not inconceivable that you could find secularists, and that may or may not be the term that they settle on as their identity, but you could imagine that this is a group that congeals in some way that we've not yet seen. What would it take? Frankly, a political leader. It would take, or maybe leaders, plural, um, entrepreneurs in the political space who figure out a way to bring these people together and give them a shared identity so that they do think of themselves as being part of a common cause. And right now, there's perhaps less of that than you might think, given their size.
3: Uh, I I think it's worth noting, as as Dave rightly mentions, groups um, or identities that have formed um, in some sense because of politics like Latino and like LGBTQ. uh, I think it's worth going back 40 years to think about uh, evangelical Christianity and how deeply divided it was. Um, I think we tend to think of evangelicals today as a monolith, but even in the 1980s, as um, the Christian right movement began to emerge, there were deep divisions between Pentecostals, Pentecostals and Charismatics, and fundamentalist Christians. And part of the the failure of the earliest Christian right organizations like Jerry Falwell's Moral Majority was their inability to bridge those gaps. The Moral Majority and Falwell himself uh, was a fundamentalist and had been very critical of uh, Pentecostals like Pat Robertson, um, who later uh, was the, the head of the Christian Coalition. So, it was politics to some degree that created this superordinate identity of evangelical and all of those divisions underneath that surface have sort of been forgotten over time. Um, and largely because of politics. So politics, um, could certainly unify a a secular left to some degree. Um, and in particular, the, I think in addition to, to secular political leaders, um, I think a big thing that helps a secular movement emerge um, are people like Donald Trump. And events like January 6th, when Christian imagery and symbolism are associated with a violent insurrection that is sure to bring people towards secularism. Now they will need secular leaders to mobilize them. And it's always going to be harder than it was for the religious right, because as Dave said, you don't have the infrastructure of churches where people um, for centuries have been voluntarily coming together and gathering and donating money and with um, uh membership lists with phone numbers and addresses and all those sorts of things. Finding secularists, bringing them to a common place, is always going to be more difficult. We are starting to see some of that secular gathering, um, Sunday morning secular meetings, secular church. Um, it's always going to be difficult, but I think political backlash to politicized religion, particularly if politicized religion moves increasingly in an anti-democratic direction, Um, in addition to political um, secularist leadership, could produce a much more unified, coherent, and larger secular left.
0: So I think there's another thing also that we need to add into the mix here. And in addition to this story about the sort of individual entrepreneurship by political leaders in trying to bring together this uh, kind of Inquit group, of the secular left is in, in terms of thinking about how this might translate potentially into a kind of confessional party system, um, the role of race and in particular, the kind of asymmetries between the Republican party where libertarians, you know, sort of non religious libertarians might be quite a small part of that party. Um, whereas on the democratic side, you do have this substantial chunk of the democratic party that is that is religious and, and that is a primarily African-American and, 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 and uh, Latino Democrats. And so I wonder if you could comment a bit on that and about the challenges that, uh, that, that, that face these entrepreneurs, uh, Dave, um, in, 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 term, in, in the future in terms of organising that group and, and, and uniting it.
2: Well, you've set this uh, question up very nicely, um, Ursula, by highlighting uh, the potential divisions within the Democratic Party. Uh, along religious secularist lines. So let's just establish that it's a myth that the Republicans are the religion party and the Democrats are the secular party. Rather, it's more that the the Republicans are largely the religion party. That part is actually mostly true. Um, But on the Democratic side, while there certainly is a secularist wing of the party, there is also this wing of the party that is quite religious, and that's largely... African-Americans, and to a slightly lesser extent, um, Latinos. Now, those wings of the party can get along. We actually are seeing that right now in the Biden era. Uh, for the most part, Joe Biden has managed to keep those camps together, but that doesn't mean that's going to continue. In fact, if anything, um, there was you know, such a desire on the part of the Democrats to remove Trump from office that there has been perhaps an artificial sense of comity within the Democratic Party that will likely fade over time. And so we would predict that there would be some tensions along religious-secular lines, which line up loosely with tensions along uh, race lines within the Democratic Party. But that doesn't mean they can't be um, smoothed over. In fact, Barack Obama did a pretty good job, actually, of managing those two different wings of the party. And as I said, thus far, Joe Biden has as well. But that doesn't guarantee that continue, particularly as secularists become more mobilized and active. And what if they do begin to think of themselves as a cohesive group? Well then you might expect to see more tensions within the Democrats.
0: One thing you don't get a chance to talk about much in the book, but which I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on is whether the pandemic um, has the potential to entrench the kind of secular religious, religionist divide. I mean, I'm thinking here about vaccine hesitancy. I'm thinking here about attitudes towards science. Um, is there anything that, that that that's come out of the pandemic that you think maybe uh, where your sort of apparatus, maybe Jeff, um, that that you identify in the book can 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 give us some explanatory leverage?
3: Uh- that's a great question, Ursula, and and I have to admit we haven't thought a great deal about it. So this is this is top of the head, um, but I think the pandemic is is going to have a profound effect on American religion, and it already has on American politics. The question of whether those two things are linked is a different question, but in terms of American religion, um, as people left religious attendance behind and churches and other religious organizations went virtual, um, I think we're already seeing a a lot of people are not going to come back. And so the rise of non-religion in the United States is just simply going to be accelerated by the fact that people got out of the habit of regular worship attendance. Um, At the same time, um, you're exactly right about attitudes towards science, um, polarization over vaccination, um, questioning of science by the Republican Party, and the embrace of science, the embrace of Anthony Fauci and, and scientific leaders by Democrats, just further polarizes um, the country over a core part of secularism, which is the embrace of science and rationalism. Um, and I, I think that, um, that, that almost certainly, um, entrenches the Republican party more in a, not just a religionist, but a very traditionally religious worldview, um, you know, almost a pre-industrial kind of religion, um, and at the same time, it, it has further um, bonded the Democratic Party and some secularist ideals. Um, but even within American religion, we have seen a polarization over the response to the pandemic. Evangelical churches have, have been back for, for months, maybe even for almost a year, um, you know, m- meeting maskless, singing openly in indoor spaces. Uh, mainline Protestant churches have not been have been extremely cautious um, about returning in person and when they do wearing masks um, limiting or, or prohibiting singing that sort of thing so even with an American religion you see the part that is more um, apt to identify with the Republican party um, treating the the pandemic, in in a more casual, less concerned way and the part that tends to be more progressive uh, and where the religious base of uh, the Democratic Party might be um, taking the pandemic much more seriously. And so I think um, the pandemic has just further polarized, politically polarized American religion um, to a large degree.
0: Dave.
2: Just to build on what Jeff was saying, um, the challenge that any secular activist or any politician who maybe wanted to build a coalition around secularism faces is the secularism is often thought of as being anti-religious. And the United States, for all of our talk of a secular surge, is still a highly religious country. And so no politician wants to be portrayed as anti-religious. Well, the sort of polarization around science and scientific issues, including vaccinations, but I would include uh, the environment, sort of similar issues under the same umbrella that, that Jeff has noted, that actually offers an opportunity for politicians who might want to try to build a secular coalition to talk not in anti-religious language, but simply pro-scientific language, which is not necessarily anti-religious. Certainly, there are many people who are able to be both religious and embrace science. But in the public square, it would enable those people to draw a contrast between their view and that of the other side without explicitly criticizing religion, which I think is still a third rail for many Americans. That is something you don't want to touch.
0: So- I mean, I'm a Brit, and uh, I, I find uh, it fascinating reading uh, what you have to say about American the the the, the, the exceptionalism in, in lots of ways of American religion as as being much more religious than other developed nations. And you had a few little moments in your uh, book about uh, Germans being horrified. Um, when you talk about public avowals of religion in American politics and just horrified to hear that. And, and uh, from the British perspective, I mean, there's some interesting research about the role of religion with respect to our, our own defining um, uh, uh, political divide and that is the the brexit debate and about the relationship between anglicanism and, and Catholicism and, and the leave remain split and, but particularly that the that the Anglican is the less devout Anglicans it's those who are not particularly active within the church who are most in favor of who were most in favor of brexit and um so I'm just wondering I mean your book of course is 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 a deep dive into American politics and American religion but I, I speak as a, as, a, as a non-American here, but and say, you know, how far do you think what you have to say might be relevant beyond American shores in terms of understanding uh, politics elsewhere in the developed world or, or even further afield? Um, uh, Dave, do you want to take that up?
2: I have to say that is a fascinating uh, data point that you just shared, that it's the, the less devout Anglicans who are most likely to support Brexit. Well, that sounds an awful lot like the non-religionists that Jeff was describing earlier who have supported Donald Trump, right? So there I think we do see some parallels. Now, of course, a difference between the British context or what you might find in many European countries or in Canada or in Australia is that you're just less likely on the right to find as much religious language. You'll find some of it, of course, but not nearly as much. So to the extent that what we're describing in the US is a backlash... To the religious right. You know, the growth of secularism at least is partly fed by a backlash to this um, very muscular form of religion in the political sphere. That you're not going to find in these other countries, which might maybe put a break on secularism as a political movement, because there's nothing to you know t- to resist against. There's, there's, there's nothing causing the backlash. At the same time, just to take the UK, I mean, the UK is a very secular country. And so you might expect that appeals to secularism would be attractive in the British context in a way that maybe American politicians haven't quite realized because the secular population that we've identified is a relatively new thing. Jeff. Uh,
3: That is a fascinating data point, Ursula, and and I agree with Dave that it sounds awfully familiar um, but I think what it also speaks to is the emergence of, of nationalism, particularly white nationalism in the United States and across much of Europe, um, that often some nominal connection to religion um, as being foundational to the country or as being part of the heritage um, or of what a true American or a true Brit, what that really means. That connection increases nationalism, um, whereas devotion to some degree decreases it. You know the, the universal nature of faith, um, the international nature of um, the Anglican community or, of course, the, the Roman Catholic Church, um, that becomes more evident for people who are more devout. But those people who have an identity... But that identity is not re reinv- is not combined with any sort of regular attendance or devotion. They often cling to the sort of nationalistic part of faith. So it's not all that surprising that sort of nominal Anglicans, members of the Church of England, <laughs> would have this sort of nationalist view. In the same way that for um, many um, sort of nominal Protestants and Catholics in the United States, um, they are very likely to view America as a Christian nation, even though they themselves don't regularly practice Christianity. Um, And we have an increasing um, attention to and scholarly work on Christian nationalism in the United States. Dave and I, at least so far, and John. Uh, have not been deeply involved in that, but I suspect what we're going to find is that the strongest supporters of Christian nationalism, white Christian nationalism, may well be people who are not terribly devout Christians themselves.
0: So I'd like to, uh, ask just one final question, if that's okay. Um, and, and that is, uh, You've hinted at various points during our conversation about some of the work that you're doing at the moment um, that sort of follows on from secular surge. And I I wondered, what's next for the two of you um, uh, in terms of your research, in terms of uh, uh, building upon um, the work that you're doing in secular surge and and perhaps forging uh, new research directions as well? Dave?
2: Well, I can give you a sneak peek of some results that are hot off the presses. But I should caution uh, any listeners that what I've said is literally just new stuff that we're working on. And so we'll see whether it survives peer review and what we think when we really kick the tires. But for now, what we um, have done is gone back to people we interviewed in 2017 for what we call the Secularism in America uh, study, which features prominently in Secular Surge. Well, we interviewed a bunch of them in 2017, and then we returned to as many as we could find in 2021, after the January 6th insurrection. Now we were interested in all sorts of things that might've changed over time, but in particular, we asked a number of questions about their recall and perceptions of what happened on January 6th, including questions about the religious imagery and symbols that we saw during the Capitol riot. And what we have found, at least thus far, is that people who are more likely to associate religious symbolism with the insurrectionists, that is, they're the ones that see the insurrectionists as carrying crosses, which happened and believe that they were doing God's will and were promoting a version of Christian nationalism. If you thought that about the insurrection, you are over time more likely to become more secular which is interesting because we actually in other panel surveys have not seen that much movement on secularism, right? It's mostly been on the non-religiosity that we see the movement. Now we're seeing movement on the secularism, which suggests that maybe becoming non-religious is sort of the gateway drug. That's what gets you into the secular world. And then you see January 6th and it really amplifies this idea that, oh, I don't want anything to do with religion. And so I'm not just going to be non-religious. I'm going to fully embrace um, secularism, which is an extension of this idea that politicized religion has caused a religious backlash. But I think it's really you know, leveling it up a bit because um, January 6th is just uh, you know a moment that will live on in history and we're seeing all sorts of consequences. And here's one that maybe we hadn't anticipated.
0: That is absolutely fascinating. So we need to dig down now into this idea about this backlash and how you know, the, the various different stages that that backlash might take and the various different events that might reinforce or, or, or slow the, 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 pr- the process of that, of that backlash against, against religion. Um, Jeff, um, do you have anything you wanted to add about your, your own research agenda as we're uh, uh, building upon the secular surge?
3: Well, Ursula, I've just become chair of our department, so the idea that I have a research agenda is somewhat comical. Um, however, um, in addition to the work Dave described, we also do continue to do work as I think I alluded to earlier on atheist candidates, um, or candidates who don't believe in God who are a very tiny proportion of American political candidates currently, but are likely to grow. Um, and we're trying to figure out, um, through experimental vignettes, what you could do to to lead people to vote for an atheist candidate and taking off of the findings in Secular Surge about people seeing uh, atheists or candidates who don't believe in God as being uh, less trustworthy and less patriotic, we have tried to create experimental vignettes in which they are portrayed as quite trustworthy or quite patriotic. turns out it's much easier to make them patriotic because you just make them a war hero. They've earned a purple heart. Um, And so we've had some success with that. And that does increase affect for the candidate and likelihood of voting for the candidate. Um, And uh, the trustworthy part is a little more difficult to manipulate experimentally. Um, But we have some early evidence that um, um, it might be possible to nominate um, candidates who don't believe in God and have some prospects of electoral success, but they have to have certain characteristics. And, and being a, uh, a military veteran, particularly one who may have been uh, wounded in battle or who has been uh, somebody of particular valor, um, that might overcome this aversion that Americans have to candidates who don't believe in God.
0: That is absolutely fascinating. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about this research. Um, Jeff, Dave, thank you very much for speaking with me. The book is Secular Surge, A New Fault Line in American Politics. Uh, Thank you so much for joining the podcast.
2: Well, thank you. We have enjoyed this time to talk about our work. We appreciate it.
3: Thanks very much, Ursula.